This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Handy. Uh, Jack Handy, great comedy writer. He was did the SNL Deep Thoughts. Uh, and I'm really excited to print this book that he's got coming out. Um, oh, I just opened uh, the ad copy, and it's it's not for Jack Handy. Uh, it's for a website. Okay. I had a lot of um, Jack Handy specifics, but um, I can audible here. Uh, and not audible.com. Um, Handy is a website where you can book top-rated home cleaners and handymen. Friendly vetted professionals at your doorstep. Just pick a time and we'll do the rest. Um, that's a deep thought. Uh, shoot. I should read these copy before I start recording. Don't want to restart because I, I don't really have much time before this episode comes out. Um, experience and background check professionals. You can do easy online payment and rescheduling. God, I really, I spent a lot of time on the Jack Handy Wikipedia page. I copy and pasted a lot of facts about him. He's from San Antonio. He's 69. Nice. I was going to do a whole bit about that. Uh, Handy has affordable and flexible cleaning plans. You can request your favorite professionals. Every cleaning is insured. Um, shit. Oh, I just got a tech. I mean, I just got a text. Jeez Louise. This is a mess. I uh, uh, every uh, cleaning supplies included. They also do furniture assembly, interior painting, hanging pictures and shelves, TV mounting, plumbing, electrical, a handyman, and more. Um, maybe they can do a couple of uh, sardonic jokes to um to to paintings. Is that what Jack Handy did? I don't even remember. I just keep on getting too much text. Oh, God, I should start this over. I, I really, I mean, this is, you know, I do bits on these ads. This is not a bit. I thought this was a Jack Handy ad. <sighs> I'm going to keep going. Um, you can book a cleaner today and save by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash handy. That's boardwalkaudio.com slash handy. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. <laughs> On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the supporter artist button shop on Amazon like you normally would, and I get a little kickback. Hey, I've been pretty down about comedy on this podcast, what with the uh, entire industry kind of exploding, but I have a very positive comedy thing to say. I saw Game Night this weekend, and man oh man is it funny. From beginning to end, it's chock full of great jokes that, for me, pretty much nearly all hit, uh, not to mention a pretty good story that uh, kind of hits all the emotional speeds that you'd want it to. Um, and like, the, you know, for me, a lot of these comedies, act three of them tend to like just be all action and no comedy. Not the case here. The action informed the comedy and the comedy informed the action. So that was really cool. Honestly, and I know this is going to sound kind of crazy. I think it's probably the best studio comedy since Bridesmaids, which was like seven years ago. Um, I mean, I liked, I liked a couple movies since then. Uh, like last year, I liked both Fist Fight and Girls Trip. And uh, I really like Popstar two years ago, but yeah, I think I think Game Night's better than all of those in many sense. So 
Uh, and kind of more importantly for you business freaks, we live like in this age where pretty much every comedy movie is going to either have to have a lot of action or it's going to have to have Kevin Hart or both like Jumanji. So it's if it's going to have like a big budget. So it's pretty cool that, uh, you know, Game Night shows that formula can actually result in a very entertaining and very funny movie. So please check it out. It needs to make a lot of money or else... I know it's weird that I'm plugging a major motion picture that was probably made for like 60 to $80 million, but if it's not a success, they're not going to make another one like it, and we got to get more movies like that. So uh, check it out. This week's guest is James Fulta. He's a big online writer for places like The New Yorker, McSweeney's, Funny or Die. Uh, if you want to be a comedy writer, a great place are these online publications because you can just send something in, and then all of a sudden you have a credit for McSweeney's. And you can do that from anywhere in the country. So if you're not in New York or L.A. or Chicago and you want to do comedy, great way to get started. Uh, James also runs a hilarious uh, or an evening of hilarious readings. they got a show coming up. I don't have it in front of me, but he plugs at the end of the show. You can check him out on Twitter. And you'll see more information. And through that uh, evening of readings, he also does a newsletter, which I highly recommend because it has like the best comedy writing of the week. It's great. Uh, and he's also published a couple of parody magazines, including Paul Ryan, the magazine, which he gave to me after the interview. I've been reading it and it, it's so funny. It's so densely packed with jokes. There's no space wasted. So it's really exciting to read something like that. Uh, so yeah, James is a great guy. It's a cool interview. Here is James Fulta. James, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, where are you from originally? I'm originally from New York. So, um, I was actually born in... Uh, NYU Hospital in front of, mm, I think it was 14 med students because my mom counted each and every one Whoa. of them. <laughs> yeah. Is that the, uh, what's it called? L- L- Langone? Langone, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is uh, that like, so wait, is that like, uh, this is completely. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is, so the med students just watch it and then like take notes? Are they also like part of it in some way? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I don't know anything about medicine or the <laughs> medical education profession, but it's, um, I think it's like a teaching hospital. So yeah. yeah, they're just kind of around. They're learning. They might help out. I really don't know. Yeah, yeah. I was literally being born, so I was pretty busy. So, so you grew up in the city. Uh, we were here till my sister was born, and then we moved upstate. Okay, Got cool. the classic like priced out, moved around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we ended up in the burbs. It was fun. Uh, were you interested in comedy at all uh, when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, my parents are. My dad's a writer. My parents are very, very funny. Um, they love comedy. One of the big things that my dad had to... Like, I think one of the biggest fights that my parents got into was how early I was allowed to watch Airplane. Um, <laughs> so, like, it was very important that they, like, show me comedy. And, like, I had a lot of... I was obsessed with SNL. My parents, I think, watch SNL more than anyone that I know. Like, they still watch every episode the night that it airs. Wow. Yeah, they're, like, big comedy fans. Um, and then, yeah, I started... Uh, my sister's also a performer. She's a singer. So we used to do these, like, radio shows. And that was, I think, my first experience with like doing performing comedy was like i would write little skits she would sing songs and i would like read shell silverstein poems and we'd be (laughs) like this is our radio show um so i guess yeah from a young age i was interested in writing and performing and comedy what what kind of uh shows would you watch um i was a big still i'm a big simpsons guy Mm -hmm. um i was a big snl kid um i loved all of those uh like those early 90s SNL spinoff movies like uh, Wayne's oh, World yeah. and um, 
Yeah, I was a huge Wayne's World fan. Loved everything uh, Chris Farley did. It's Pat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it's Pat ever. But it doesn't. You're fine. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like it's not great. It's not part of like the the canon of greats. But um, yeah, and like you know all the Will Ferrell stuff hit me at like the perfect like adolescent age. Um, mm-hmm. So I watched a ton of that stuff. But as far as TV, like Simpsons, Seinfeld, all the classics. Going back to the SNL movies, uh, Night at the Roxbury was a Chris Kattan movie. Yeah. And Will Ferrell was the sidekick. He was the sidekick, yeah. That's so strange to think about. I know. That movie is... I mean, he steals so many scenes. I still think think about the line when he, like... He like picks a, a flower and he's like, "This this is real. It'll be dead in a week." And it's just <laughs> such a funny like specific little dig for a guy who specializes in fake flowers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's he's so funny. He's, he's gotta, so funny. He's got to make some more movies. Mm-hmm. He hasn't made many movies. And then it's like you know Mel Gibson. Like I don't want to watch that. Oh, I know. Yeah, he's. Um, I just wish he would go back to doing sketch. I mean, he's so yeah. perfect for even when he was making the rounds recently. On the late night shows. I mean, there's so much fun stuff that he was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, He's just got, like, that perfect energy where he, like, comes out and he grabs your attention and he only needs it for, like, two minutes. Mm -hmm. I think that's why his movie career was, like, fun, but it was ultimately kind of thin because his acting style is like, I'm going to make this scene insane and you'll love this one scene. But then it's like, oh, do we have to see another scene of this? Like, Mm. I'm already kind of exhausted. That's interesting. I never thought about it like that. It's, it's very, very sketchy. Yeah, like he's like he's a perfect, perfect sketch actor. Oh, so I wish he would do more stuff like that. But anyway, he's not. He's fine. He yeah. Do <laughs> <for the rest laughs> <of his> life. <laughs> uh, were you doing any comedy in high school? Um, not really. Um, high school, I was mostly doing uh, homework. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was watching a lot of movies. Um, yeah, I feel like having no friends in high school was a great way to like informally give <laughs> oneself a film education. Yeah. Um, my parents, for some reason, had the VHS, the complete VHS of AFI's top 100 movies of all time, which came out in, like, I don't know, the late 90s. So it's, like, the best movies up till the late 90s. Whoa. So I, like, sat down and I watched all those VHSs. That must suck, though, because, like, that probably cost a lot of money. And then <laughs> yeah. VHS soon was out of, even in the late 90s, was kind of going out. Oh, yeah. It was for sure dead. I think it was a gift, actually, because okay. VHS was going out that somebody was like, oh. we got a bunch of these, like, take one. Oh, that's good, then. That's and they're in, these, they're in these, like, big, like, cardboard suitcases. <laughs> um, and they all have, like, the same standardized case. But, yeah, I watched, like... All those movies. So, yeah, I didn't really start doing comedy performance in earnest until college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was on two sketch teams, um, did a lot of sketch. Um, and then when I graduated, I started doing stand-up and fell into improv and mm-hmm. have been doing writing and improv ever since. Where did you go to college? Uh, Tufts University in Boston. Okay. Or outside of Boston. And, there, and the, you were on uh, two different sketch teams? Yeah, so we had a one that was like theater-adjacent. Um, that did a stage show, and then we, the TV station had a sketch show um, that uh, was started a year before I was a freshman. So it was, like, still very new. And so we, like, ostensibly were being broadcast on TV, but it was essentially just, like, a live show that we did mm. three three pre-taped sketches, three live sketches, and then we did, like, a weekend update rip-off segment, which was always really fun. Yeah, that is cool. So, like, you were, like... Uh, like doing kind of like news stuff, like news satire stuff. Yeah, so we, me and my friend Dan, uh, hosted Tufts today, and so it it was exactly the same as yeah. Weekend Update, where we do a desk bit, um, we do like a little like banter bit between us, and then we do jokes about like 
topical monologue jokes about the school and about like the news in general, Mm -hmm. Um, which was really fun. We ended up like having a everyone who was funny on campus by the end of it. Well, that's maybe (laughs) overly ambitious of me to say, but we had a lot of friends who were like contributing jokes, and it was really fun to like. That's I feel like was a big part of me getting into writing was like having this community of people who are sending jokes and like we were workshopping them and having fun and it was like such a blast yeah was that like a monthly show it was every yeah every like month to five weeks so we yeah. did it was pretty frequent for also being full-time students it was pretty crazy yeah yeah and there was you derailed a live sketch team yeah called major undecided that did uh, two shows a semester and that was um they were always like big and like sloppy and fun yeah it was, it was awesome now uh, did you, were, did you guys have like really long shows? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I had to go see a friend's. I hope he's not listening. To this. I had to go see <laughs> a, a friend's show at USC, and it was like two and a half hours. Oh, jeez. We were never that long. It was just like, and it was like there was like twenty, thirty sketches, and I was like, it's like so much to make someone sit through to watch. Yeah, stuff. we did like fifteen. We probably did like twelve to fifteen sketches. So it was yeah. like a solid hour yeah. of like amateur comedy, but. <laughs> You know, it wasn't the TV show was 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 a lot better paced. It, that was only like maybe five six sketches, and it only mm-hmm. lasted like a half hour. So mm-hmm. so that was like manageable, and then everyone would hang out. It was so fun. Uh, and and what was your actual like major during this time? I studied architecture um, and archaeology. Oh, so I was a double major. Um, yeah, which was great. Um, did do you like? Does that play into your writing at all? Um, so sometimes I do. I do some. I do a little bit of architectural writing. Um, archaeology. I went on one dig during the summer. <laughs> um, yeah, I went on one um, uh, archaeological dig, and I was like, "This is very hard science in a way that I cannot <laughs> hack." Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it. I guess you know, being informed about things never hurts one's writing. But I wouldn't say I'm explicitly like doing a show about. Any one particular topic, though I fantasized about it. <laughs> uh, so after college, you went to. Uh, did you go to New York? No, I was in San Francisco for two years. Um, I worked as a carpenter for about five or six years after graduating, and my first job was in San Francisco. Um, and so I was out there, and I fell in with a really cool group of comedians who ended up forming uh, Endgames Improv, which is still going oh, yeah. on out there. Um, they're actually doing great. Um, and yeah, that's how I first discovered improv, and like you know more. Did, did you immediately like improv? Um, not really. <laughs> uh, I think I, I ended up going to um, what was turned out to be a jam that I thought was an open mic. And so I had like a bunch of jokes prepared. And I was so <laughs> mad that it wasn't a mic that I had to sit through and like watch this um, like improv show. I mean, I had like kind of everyone's disdain for college short form. Um that's not fair. The, the team at Tufts was very good and fun, but I was just sort of like, this is not for me. This is some theater kid stuff that I'm not interested in. Um, but when I realized that improv can also be sketch on its feet, um, that was really exciting. So I did, I did like it. I was frustrated that I was bad at it for like a year and a half, and that sucked. But, <laughs> um, but I ended up finding like a really fun crew, and it was really... Yeah, I, so, and I love it now. It's it's a blast. Were you uh, doing any writing uh, during that time? Yeah, that's when I first started writing. I was, like, very lonely. I didn't know anyone in San Francisco, <laughs> so I would literally go to work, come home, and if I wasn't performing, I was submitting stuff to, like, McSweeney's, and that's when I first started writing short humor in earnest. What, what like, prompted you to start doing that? I was always a fan. Like, I loved, um, I loved all that writing. I was a big fan of the short humor of, like, Pearlman and... 
um, uh, Woody Allen back when he nobody was <laughs> so mad about it. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna say so mad. Back when people were cooler about him being a dirtbag. Um, but yeah, I I just was remember being really sparked by this like short humor. Um, I loved like Nora Ephron's writing, like all that stuff. Um, but it was always a thing that I was like, no, but I can't do that. Um, but then when I saw McSweeney's, just was just open for you could just send them stuff and they would like say yes, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I that was like a big goal, so I started doing that. Well, how how do you even like just start doing that? Like, how do you even like st- like sit down? Like, okay, here's an idea and let's just write it out. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah. I, I again, I've been like reading the stuff, so I sort of had a sense of like the kind of thing that McSweeney's was into. Um, so I think my first piece was uh, John John Hughes or no. John Ford movie starring cats. So it was a lot of like <laughs> westerns with cats, which is like very McSweeney's, right. like very like first pass, like almost a like almost a satirical take on like what McSweeney's would be. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just like had a bunch of ideas uh, from like old rejected sketches from college that I tried to like retrofit into short humor. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Were you uh, just doing McSweeney's only, or were you submitting at a bunch of different places? I was submitting to a bunch of different places. So I was, that's when I was writing for, um, like, The Toast was still around, um, Above Average, or maybe Above Average hadn't started up yet, but, like, Funny or Die and College Humor and mm-hmm. kind of all the, the big sites. There was a couple of other, like, weirder ones, like Trop, T-R-O-P. I don't know. There's been, like, a lot of websites that have come and gone. Yeah. Um, but I've pretty much been trying to submit to all of them <laughs> since then. Wait, when did you move to New York? I moved back in 2012, and I've been here ever since. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you start taking class at UCB? Pretty much immediately, yeah. Um, I, I When I was in San Francisco, we would come back and do the Del Close Marathon, so I knew that I was interested in like performing there. Um, so I just kind of went and started taking the classes and um, working and performing and, yeah. Were you, were you taking any like uh, any sketch as well? Not really, um, yeah. not really. I was I was mostly interested in doing short humor writing, um, and then and then improv. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I never. I don't know. I've I've thought about going back at this point, but um, it's sort of a thing where now I don't know. I don't want to say that like I don't think I could get anything out of it because I surely could could get something mm-hmm. out of it but it just seems at this point I'm, I don't know that my career is going to be serviced by like going back and taking right. more classes and at, at the time that I was doing it I couldn't afford to be taking more than one mm-hmm. thing at once it is something with sketch classes too where it's like uh, most of what you get out of it is just like workshopping yes for sure like you're not like you're not like every day going in and then like learning a new right, thing it's right. like, all just like workshopping sketches so you could theoretically do that outside of that yes yeah and i've got lucky that that i have a pretty tight group of friends who do similar kind of writing that like we edit each other's stuff and send each other's notes which has been such a blessing of like Mm -hmm. getting your stuff read and noted within a week is like it's awesome (laughs) yeah do do you find your improv skills helping your writing skills um i think it's made me a little bit less precious um as far as you know i don't stress over having you know drafts and drafts and drafts of things where you can just like thinking out loud on your feet and having that be the the final draft when you're Mm. at a show is like liberates you to um you know when you're writing just to like try stuff out knowing that you can delete it i feel like before i started performing improv in earnest i was a little more precious when i was writing as far as um 
just like wanting to get it right the first time and which is again just like becoming a better writer and learning that rewriting is writing and you have mm-hmm. to constantly massage and change and edit and delete and rewrite so uh and has being on a herald team like uh, i don't know has it done anything yeah, i mean not really yeah. um it's introduced me to some good people um yeah, some folks that I've collaborated with. I think that mm-hmm. I think the UCB is great for like meeting like-minded folks that you can work with. But as far as like advancing my career, helping yeah. with my writing, it's <laughs> Harold Knight doesn't. It's not. It's a yeah. blast. Mm-hmm. You know, God bless. But it it hasn't been a huge boon for my career, mm-hmm. especially not writing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you do a lot of writing on the internet. Sure. Uh, a lot of those places don't pay. Nope. Uh, like, so how much, what would you say, like, percentage-wise, the amount of writing you've done for free versus paid? Oh, boy. Um, I actually tried to, like, look this, I tried to, like, crunch this at some point. Um, it, it, I mean, I would say, like, probably only, like, a fifth to a quarter of the writing that I've published. Like, if mm-hmm. you go on my website and look at that list of clippings, probably only, like, a quarter of those I've been paid for. And most of that is, like you know, 50 bucks or whatever. It's not like much. Right. Um, certainly not like a living scale, but yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the reality of writing for the internet now is that you sort of have like an apprenticeship of writing for free mm-hmm. that you can then use as a resume to like pitch paying websites, which even right. that is like not necessarily the most lucrative or stable, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, it's it's definitely rough. Like, there's not many places that are paying right now, especially for the type of short comedy that I've stupidly specialized in. <laughs> <laughs> do you think, like, um, I don't know, do you think, I mean, obviously we're talking now at a particularly low point for yes. digital comedy. This yeah. is maybe the lowest point it's been. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you think it, it'll, like, rebound in any way to where it's possible that there could be uh payment or anything i think so. i mean i don't I, i'm always hopeful there's like there's some people that are doing cool stuff right now um i think that i don't know if you're aware of the american bystander but it's it's mm-hmm. a cool um print magazine that's doing really interesting stuff i i i love print media so i always feel like there's going to be space for it will people be willing to buy like physical objects i don't know um but I do think that pe- there's like a big reckoning as far as how comedy is leveraged on social media and how comedy is promoted on social media and who's making money off of the content that we're churning out mm-hmm. as like, you know, comedians and writers. Um, and so I do think that there, I do think that we're at an interesting moment and hopefully an inflection point where things will either switch to, you know, a more like formal subscription model or a, a paywall model or um a more equitable advertising model but i'm not really sure i'm not a smart enough business guy to know like how Mm -hmm. to make it work but i do think that there are good smart people who are wrestling with this and i do think especially like our generation as it's coming up and taking over media that there'll hopefully be some more i mean everyone that's everyone that's like staff writers at big magazines now came out of you know, the blogosphere, mm-hmm. um, when, uh, the all just shut down and everyone was talking about like everyone that came from the all who is now at like major publications, major websites, <clears throat> excuse me, that have like, you know, big stable jobs. 
I think they're not going to forget that sort of like where they came from, right? So to speak. So hopefully, as the you know gray hairs flip over to folks that are have you know less gray hair and are like more our age, um, hopefully things will get a little more equitable as far as like creators getting getting theirs. But mm-hmm. do you, I mean uh, Patreon's kind of interesting? It is. Yeah, it is. And that seems like that. It, it it seems like it works, but it only works if you have like a a, a base, right? Right. Like uh, you can't just like go out there and say, "Hey, I'm writing funny pieces." Right. Come come read these. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny that there's so many. So me and my friend Luke Burns, we had a uh, a Tumblr that we called the Encyclopedia of Hypothetical Police Procedurals that won a Tumblr book contest. So we ostensibly won a book deal. Um, for being like the funniest Tumblr of 2015 or something. Um, but the problem that we ran into every time we would talk to these publishing folks was like, you don't have the social media numbers to make this, uh, you know, viable for us, which like maybe was a dodge, but I've heard this like multiple times from multiple people have it, have it been told to me of like, your numbers aren't high enough. And so it feels like if traditional publishing and traditional gatekeepers are saying the same thing and Patreon is also kind of. You know, you need to have that base of fans in order to even make it viable. It kind of seems like it's the same thing from where I'm standing, at least. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it seems exciting. I know, like a lot of, I mean, I don't know if you know Branson Reese, but he's, oh yeah, he's great, and he's, I know he's doing great things on Patreon. Um, and I know a lot of other people, especially like podcasters, mm-hmm. are having great success with it. That's cool. Like, like Branson Reese, he just like uh, just posted his, his stuff on Twitter, and yeah. then they got big, and then the Patreon got big from yeah. that. So I guess you know there is a certain there's a way to do it. but it's it's difficult. Yeah, and I think it's I I, I think it's you know it's not I, I think new tools are always good, but they're never going to make things easier. They're just going to mm-hmm. be different opportunities. Where would someone like a Branson? Would someone like you know who's a successful podcast like the Doughboys mm-hmm. or whatever? Like would would they make it in a traditional setting? Probably they're talented, they're hardworking. Yeah. Um, these new tools allow them to go a different way. So I'm not really sure that there's going to be one like Kingslayer here, but um, but good, more options are always good. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting with Patreon too because it's going to get too. There's going to be too many people on it yeah. soon. Yeah, like that's probably close yeah. to the end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then it's going to become like cable. Like you just buy like a cable. Like just like streaming's probably going to end up like that soon. Yeah, it's just going to be full of stuff. That the new Cloverfield movie was very interesting. Yeah, that was cool. I heard the movie isn't good. It's but bad. I, I haven't yeah. seen it, but that was cool. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Although they should have said on the commercial during the Super Bowl, they should have said it's coming out tonight. They should yeah. have said coming soon. They had a, I read a crazy story that J.J. Abrams called up like all the actors and like the heads of production departments and were like, hey, it's coming out in a couple hours, just a heads up. And everyone was like, had no idea. Whoa. Yeah. So it was a very sort of like in the dark thing, but it does feel like a lot of content that would never see the light of day otherwise. Because mm-hmm. it seems like this movie was like going to get, you know throttled like it wasn't going to come out because it's not great oh really yeah so it does it's it's interesting to see that you know now like netflix will just like take anything and like we'll put <laughs> it up because th- they need like that broad base of the pyramid mm, that's um, interesting so yeah I'm, i don't know what the saturation point or like the the long tail of it is going to be but yeah they also i don't know if you saw this today they just announced chris rock's specials coming out tomorrow i saw that 
which is cool. I think I think it's cool. That, I think it's cool. Yeah, they're doing like because like it, you know Beyonce I think started it you know whenever right and that was really cool. But then it's like that can't happen for like movies. No, but they, it, Cloverfield. Even the last week they announced it like six months before it came out. Yeah, and this one they just popped up. It's cool. I mean, I think it's I think it's exciting. I think it's a smart way to leverage the sort of like virality of social media. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I'm excited. I'm I'm excited to see what the new models generate. Um, but yeah, I also am afraid of like saturation points. I think it's going to be like, yeah. I think there's going to be a giant contraction at some point. It's interesting. Cause I, I feel like, uh, you know, branded content was kind of what everyone thought was going to save it. Right. And I think that's proven to not be the case at all. No, people don't like ads. Yeah. I mean, like I think people are smart enough to know when they're being like sold an ad and they don't mm. like it. Um, I also think companies aren't as willing to throw money at creative people to make stuff as they claimed they were. Mm. Um, but I really don't know. Yeah, it's, it does. That does feel true that it's like it hasn't really panned out. It's interesting. Cause they uh, there was supposed to be a big reckoning for podcast because they are they're releasing the thing about people skipping over ads. Oh, I didn't see this. This is like a couple months ago. Uh, but then there were the study show that people weren't skipping over ads like people were surprisingly not skipping oh, ads um so then the reckoning never, never happened <laughs> they just uh, kind of assumed that people would be fast forwarding yeah and so everyone huh. thought that like everyone everything was going to shut down oh interesting uh but it didn't happen that's good so uh yeah i guess people are just too lazy on the when they're <laughs> yeah. just walking around to skip <laughs> yeah so thank God. Or it, people are not listening that closely to any part of the podcast. That's probably true too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so going back to online short form comedy, mm-hmm. what do you like about doing that rather than say a sketch or improv? Or just say a sketch probably because improv is different too. Yeah. I mean I think the one thing I like is that it's – I can do it on my own. Like I can – have an idea, I can produce it myself, and I can, you know, have it published without having to, like, put shoes on, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think one thing that really exhausted me about doing so much sketch in college and then after college, like, starting a theater company was there's just, there's, like, a lot of legwork, there's a lot of organizing, there's a lot of meetings to set up, there's a lot of props to buy, there's a lot of running around, there's a lot of rehearsals. So it's very, it was very refreshing to me to have something solitary where i can just sit down and like work on something and have it be my own thing Mm -hmm. and then let it out when it's like ready not have too many cooks in the kitchen so i do like this sort of um like monastic side to to writing comedy this way do do you like like anything specifically though in in like the form of it yeah i think it's i mean i love i love like books and i love reading stuff so the the form of prose is like very exciting to me and i think there's things that you can do comedically as far as like um painting a picture and Mm -hmm. like um you can take people to places that you wouldn't be able to in a sketch as convincingly Mm -hmm. um where like if you're on stage and you you paint your face green to be an alien that's like funny in one way but then you can also like write a convincing space Mm. scene make it funny um, do whatever you want. I mean, it's just like the thrill of reading, or the thrill of literature is that you can go anywhere yeah. you want, do anything you want. Is is literature less popular now? I think I feel like it's somehow more popular. <sighs> I'm not sure. I mean, I would hope so. I I I, th- I think it's doing. I don't. I don't think literature will ever die. You yeah, know? yeah. I think people will always love books, and there always will be a book that breaks out. Um, I think it's very interesting, like 
politically that one of the big bombshells was that Fire and Fury book. That right. it was like a book that like a long book. Mm-hmm. Um that ended up being like a big flashpoint. Yeah, which was not well at copy edited. No, it, no, it wasn't good. It, like, no. yeah, it's. I mean, it, it wasn't. <laughs> There's it, so many errors in that in that book. So many errors. He uses the same phrases over and over. Truly, I, I bet also he made up a lot of that stuff. Yeah, it's hard to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no way that he was like that prosaically taking notes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I I like to think that literature's doing fine, but I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. So with these pieces, you're usually, I'd imagine, not on any sort of deadline. No. Uh, so how do you like uh, keep yourself like imposed to like get it out? Well, so for the last four years, I've been hosting this reading night, and that's been a really way to good way to keep myself honest. Um, where me and two other writers who work in the same vein uh, host a show called An Evening of Humorous Readings, um, and I. The, one of the sort of selfish reasons why we started doing the show was that we wanted an excuse to every month write two or three new things. Um, and it's a really good deadline to have to be like, I have to perform a piece of writing. I have to get up in front of people and make them laugh with something. Um, and it keeps you honest. Yeah, it keeps me on like a pretty rigorous deadline. And I like to, you know, internally for my own edification, I like to have something new to send out every two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. So I try to, you know, I have like an internal schedule of like how many, how, how recently have I bugged an editor with a new piece of writing? <laughs> and then once it's like lagged enough, I want to have something in the hopper. I can like mm-hmm. zip out to them. When you're writing stuff for that show, are you thinking like differently? Like besides just writing a good internet piece, I want something that's kind of performative and that can like stand out. No, not really. I mean, the whole point of the show is to have it just be about the writing. Yeah. Um, because, one of the other reasons why we started the show is we were doing this stuff for McSweeney's and the New Yorker. And then we, people would be like, we'd love to have you do it on our show. Uh Um, and we would go and do it and it would be like a stand up and improv team. And then a guy with a piece of paper being like, (laughs) I'm going to read to you. And it would die. It would like, it would die every time. So we were like, we need to make a, like a safe space for this kind of writing. So I always think about how it works on the page first. And then once it's in a good shape there, then I'll think about like, um, you know, is is there like some way that I can perform it a little better? But I never do like voices or anything. I don't write like monologues. There's no props, um, so it's all just about the writing. But as far as like reading it, um, I'll give it a little bit of thought. But it, mm-hmm. it truly, like, the show is mostly just about the writing. Mm-hmm. Like we aim to have it. The audience comes expecting that sort of pace, mm-hmm. which is really great. So, uh, walk me through like your process, like when you get an idea to page to like sending it off. Um, so I try to, uh, you know, like anyone, if I have a funny idea, I try to jot it down. Um, so I usually have like a notebook or I'll text myself. Um, and then yeah, at the point, some stuff I'll, it'll like come to you more fully formed, uh, and I'll just get to the writing of it. But typically I'll be like, okay, I have two hours. I should like work on something. And I'll pull up my list of ideas and grab something and start trying to work on it. Um, and then once I have, like, you know, a page and a half, it starts to feel full. Try to look for through lines, clean it up. Um, and then I'll send it out to, I have, like, three or four other writers that I really like that I send everything to. Ask them for notes, ask them for feedback, go through a couple more drafts, and then after that mm-hmm. I'll feel like it's ready to send out. And and how often do you like start something and you're like, oh, this is like, I can't, this is nothing. Almost constantly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say for like every, 
everything that I finish, there's probably like at least two other things that I've started and aborted. Yeah. Um, but typically, I mean, I have like a lot of like quote unquote headlines and like ideas that I've, <laughs> that just pile up that I'll never do anything with. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. Do you ever go back to, to something that you've aborted and then it... For and, sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's a piece that I've been working on for like literally years that I keep going back to that's like my white whale um, <laughs> that is like semi-topical. So every t- it's about... Um, it's like a mapping game about uh, mapping uh, the NRA's response to shootings onto... Um, an iceberg advocacy advocacy group <laughs> after the Titanic, yeah. which is like it feels like it could be something, but I can never quite get there, and it's yeah. probably just better as a tweet. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so it, there's there's definitely things that I'm like I think I could get it there, but you know, mm-hmm. you never know. Uh, so okay, so you've contributed to above average. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you say is like the, the voice of Above Average or maybe it was the voice at yeah, this point? I'm not really sure. They were the voice of Above Average. I think, I honestly think that they were more trying to like find their feet on video, to be mm. honest. Um, but they're, at least for their writing stuff, I mean, they kind of uh, like incubated the career of, um, of uh, Dan Chamberlain who's like one of my favorite writers and he's now at the tonight show former guest former guest great guy oh what a voice too oh yeah yeah. um but i so i kind of like i always associate them with him as far as this sort of like silly but like self-serious um and sort of like adjacent to topical but but not necessarily like specifically news oriented Mm -hmm. um but always like Always jokes first, um, which I always really respected about them. How did you start contributing with them? I don't remember. I think we, I think we maybe had one of their editors on the show, and she asked us to contribute. Or um, I also no, that's not true. They just had. I think they were one that I saw that they were publishing writing, and just you know looked up their submissions and started sending them stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, they switched to a more like onion model where they wanted headlines every Tuesday. Mm. Um, and so I, they, I started sending stuff that way. Oh yeah. They wanted like onion style headlines, not onion style headlines, okay. but like their workflow was like the onion where I like see, every yeah, yeah. Monday or Tuesday mm-hmm. you sent them a bunch of headlines and then they would take those into a pitch room and pick out ones and then assign mm-hmm. them back to you. And, and you contributed at the onion. I did. Well. Yeah. I did that for like mm, a year or so maybe. And then just like dropped off and yeah. How did you get started with that? Um, someone else who was on the show recommended that I uh, pitch. Um, and so I, like, you know, did the normal process, sent them a sample packet. Um, and then it's cool. They they hook you up with a with an editor who you, you send 10 headlines every week, which is, like, that's the whole process. You send 10 headlines every week to um, Ann, and then they send out their selects at the end of the day. But for a month... They pair you with an editor, and you send your 10 headlines to that editor. The editor gives you feedback, and you do that for a month. And then if you pass that round, then they like put your stuff on the table. Oh. Um, so I don't know if that's typical, but that's what I went through. And mm-hmm. it was it was really great just to be like – to learn, to get really specific like drill down notes on like this is on voice, this is off mm. voice. I learned so much about Area Man and like who <laughs> Area Man very specifically is. 
Um, he's like he's got to be able to live everywhere he doesn't live in a city so like area man should never be like taking the subway he should Mm. never be doing things that are like specific to you know a city or or a town or anything he needs to be able to be like everywhere so i remember that one very specifically because i pitched an area man headline where he was on the subway and he was like area man never takes subway um he doesn't live in a city he lives everywhere um which is a yeah, it's true. So it was really great to have that like very granular feedback, mm-hmm. um, and then to also like roll into going to the table with like a bunch of pre-vetted stuff um, that had been like you know not approved, but like told it was good by someone inside. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like uh, feedback is something you don't get too much in this. No, not at all. Do you get feedback from like McSweeney's or any of these other places at all? Um, usually it's, I mean, it's usually just like an up and down. Like, yes or no. Um, Chris at McSweeney's and the editor at The New Yorker will give, will make some edits and will send you a draft before it goes out Mm -hmm. to, like, make a final pass. And they'll, they'll do some, The New Yorker's more heavy handed, not super heavy handed, but they'll, they'll do like a pass of a piece um, and then offer it back to you to, to rewrite. Um, Chris at McSweeney's will do the same, um, but it's never really like, I've never gotten the thing of like, this is good, but we'd take it if you moved in this direction. Yeah. It's like, it's either it's good, here's some small ideas, or it's bad. Sorry. Um, yeah. Not it's bad, but like, we're, it's not for yeah. us. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's another thing that's been really great about um, Michael Gerber at The Bystanders. He's been very willing to like, and I know he does this with everyone that I know who writes and contributes, is he gives a lot of feedback, which is really great. Because it is so rare. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I know that they get so many submissions and they're very busy. Yes. But it is kind of, it feels like, especially, well, maybe they say yes to the things that they, they know they're like, and then they suggest the thing. Right. But uh, I don't know. It feels like a lot of pieces are probably pretty close to like yes. getting in and they just don't bother. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's just a function of volume. I think they just got to triage yeah. what they can. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's why I feel so lucky to have this like really tight knit group of friends who do the same stuff. Like, we give each other feedback because it's mm-hmm. been so, so useful that stuff that I would send out the door, um, you know, without much second thought is given like some really good and like smart feedback from mm-hmm. people that I think are very funny and respect quite a lot. So, mm-hmm. uh, at above average, you wrote, uh, I'm a big, strong daddy and I'm worried about my weak little baby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what was like the inspiration behind that idea? Oh, geez. I can't, I think I saw like a dad, I think I saw a dad at a grocery store who had said something. <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, yes. I remember I was in line at a grocery store and some guy was like, uh, some kid was looking at uh, like cake mix or something. And he was like, <laughs> he's like, dad, can we make cupcakes? And the dad like looked around the grocery store and was like, was like, that's more of your mom's department and like shouted it. <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah. And it was this insane thing where like there was a woman behind me in line that I like looked at and we were both like, what is this dude's like, how fragile of a man are you that you have to yell to the grocery store to your child? Like, it's a, just, it's just, a good bit. Yeah. So I was just sort of like, who is this dad who's like so insecure? I mean, I'm sure it's a lot of dads, not just him, but, um, but yeah, I think that was the the impetus for that piece was like imagining an insane yeah. half literate meathead mad that his baby isn't stronger. <laughs> and, and there's such fun language in that piece with like the big strong yeah. daddy, the hot 
the hot little mommy mm-hmm. and stuff. Do you do you do like do you like to work in like in like that? Yeah, I do, and I feel like when I improvise, I get more into voice that way. Um, but yeah, I definitely enjoy like trying to inhabit uh, a voice as close as more mm-hmm. as closely as I can. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that stuff does really well on stage too. It's it's always satisfying to be able to like give something a bit more voicey. Yeah, I find that interesting because it's a very easy way to elevate an otherwise yeah. stale premise yeah. just to be very specific in language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's like a very it's it's very fun and it it you know I think like genre stuff is so fun in that same way. You mm-hmm. get to like specifically inhabit this world and like speak from within that world. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, as you say, it's it's a great way to just like, take something that would have normally been like kind of ho hum yeah. and make it like a little bit more. Wacky. Yeah. That's comedy hack, or comedy hack, comedy tip number one. Oh, comedy, yeah. I meant like hack. Like a like, life hack, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. like hack, but then yeah. when you I say mean, comedy hack, it sounds bad. Could break either way. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Dan Chamberlain, he's like the master of that, of that voicey stuff. Yeah. It's like he does, um, he'll do this, these like weirdly like sexual pieces that are like, he has one called The Velvet Feels So Good Against My Skin that ran on <laughs> Funny or Die that's about like, like a stable boy who's like being seduced by uh, like a manor lord who like puts him on a couch of of uh, velvet and the kid's just like the velvet feels so good against my skin and it's so specific and weird um but but yeah the language is like such a dream <laughs> and you've contributed to funny die as well yes yeah i was um mostly when they still had a new york office um i was doing a bunch of writing for them um and they used to have uh this app called Newsflash. Okay. Do you remember it? I think vaguely or yeah, something like that. It, it didn't, I don't think it did great, but it was really fun. Um, it was basically just like a monologue joke app and I was a joke writer for oh. that and like a, like a fill in editor for them. So that was really fun. So, uh, you were like an editor for that app? Yeah. So they would, the, the main guy who ran it, like when he was on vacation, sometimes I would like mm-hmm. pop in and help out. So, so were you writing like a bunch of monologue jokes each day for Pretty it? much, yeah. It was really fun. They would every – in the morning and in the afternoons, they would send out um, like five, I think. Yeah, five um, setups for jokes that were basically like, you know, this thing happened in the news. Ah, uh, that's fun. And then you would just supply a bunch of punchlines because yeah. it literally had to fit, you know, on a single phone screen in like pretty good size font. Mm-hmm. So they they needed – one sentence just like punchlines mm-hmm. um and you could just pitch as many as you wanted and they would um and they paid which was great they paid like 10 bucks a joke which was awesome so yeah. two twice a day every weekday it was really fun really yeah. good similar to uh matt kleinman's yeah pitch yeah uh which is great I it's love so pitch. good yeah, yeah it's so fun i think it was i think it came out of the same like era of funny or die mm-hmm. um yeah pitch is very cool uh new slash was very cool when it was still around um, yeah, stuff like that felt like an exciting way to like leverage mm-hmm. uh, the internet. But what, what, what would you say is like the voice of Funny or Die, or I guess was the voice again? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, they felt, yeah, I really don't know. Which I guess was maybe sort of the problem. Um, I mean, they always felt like more of like a video sketch place to me as well. Um, I think for the for the writing, that felt more premise oriented i suppose i'm Mm. trying to think of the things that i pitched them that went through um but a lot of like i feel like i sent sent them a lot of stuff that was like how-to guides and like listy listier stuff Mm. um 
Yeah, I really don't know. Uh, well, you wrote, uh, how has nobody caught that Jason Bourne guy yet? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that was... Um, yeah, I was noticing they did a lot of stuff that was, like, from... Uh, like, written by fake people. So I did one that was, like, by the head of the uh-huh. CIA. Um, that was just, like, a frustrated guy. It's fun It's fun to do, like, kind of uh, the pop culture, like, mm-hmm. premise. St- or, that, like, not the, like, the how it happened. Right. Yeah, stuff the behind like that. the scenes. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's just funny to imagine, like, uh, I don't know. There's I, I, I really do love that sort of stuff that imagines, like, you know, in the world where there is a Jason Bourne, like, what, what is this? The CIA has got to be pissed. So it's just, like, fun to imagine. Um, one of my favorite sketches that I've, I forget, it was, like, some UCB sketch team, but they did, a, they did a sketch where there's, like, a throwaway shot in Speed where, like, a woman, they, you, you maybe even remember it where they're, like, about to hit a baby carriage. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it turns out it's full of cans. Yeah. Um, and so... The, <laughs> <this> <laughs> sketch, it's so wild. It's so wild. <laughs> so I remember seeing this sketch where, like, the, the scene is, like, a woman, like, collecting cans. And she, like, loves every can. <laughs> and she's, like, kissing it. And, like, just, like, lovingly collecting all these cans. And she's, like, talking about how much she loves her cans. And her cans mean so much to, uh, <laughs> to her. And then so she, like, walks across the stage. And then they cut to black and show that clip. Uh, and then the, like in the movie, it's like a big relief, but then they cut back to stage and the woman's devastated because she loves these cans. And it's, I just like stuff like that is so much fun of just like imagining the alternate, yeah, the alternate take on stuff. Uh, how, how does pop culture like generally do for this kind of stuff? You think? Um, I think it does. I think in, you know, like the Twitter age, it, it tends to do a little better. Um, it seems like stuff that, um, can like hit a I don't want to say like hit a nerve but hit something that people are like aware of um and that like you know because the reality of like doing this kind of writing is like people have to perk up at the headline to like want to click through um so I do think that if it's something that's like on people's minds um it'll it'll generate some thought or some of my favorite McSweeney's pieces are like the you know I regret to inform that my marriage to major von trapp has been called off which is like something that people are like oh yeah i know that thing or like indiana jones gets denied tenure um That's yeah which is like just fun stuff that i think people perk up of like oh i know this thing mm-hmm. like let's see what else is happening with this thing that i already know do you, do you ever worry about like it being kind of disposable if like yeah. it's you know times past like indiana jones i guess is like maybe a better example but like right like a Fifty Shades of Grey something or something. Yeah, I don't generally, I don't generally work. I, yeah, I I feel exactly that way. If like yeah. it did, I I would rather have work on something that's going to be evergreen than something that's going to be like a flavor of the month thing. But again, mm-hmm. like the reality is, you kind of gotta yeah. eat your vegetables at a certain point. So, do you like writing pop culture pieces? Um, I'm not really up on pop culture. It's yeah. kind of the problem. Is like <laughs> I don't know. I do like writing stuff about you know. I've been working on some like Olympic stuff. Like that's fun, um, but that's sort of like medium, medium gaze stuff. I like. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be able to write about you know. I don't know m- movies. <laughs> like I really just I'm not like I'm not a big pop culture hound in the way that other people are. So it it doesn't really like cross my field of vision as mm-hmm. much. Um, but yeah, I think generally I try to stay as evergreen Mm -hmm. as I can. So are you working on stuff for the Olympics like right now? I sent out some pitches to, um, 
forget where. I sent some pitches to some place. I think like huh. Mad Magazine, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Yeah, but yeah, I've been trying to think some stuff because it's like you know, yeah. especially places that pay. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good to be able to to do that sort of thing. So with something that's very topical, are you like? Kind of like waiting for that email back saying go for it, then you gotta like just nail it. Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. Um, Yeah, or even the problem with a lot of these places is like you'll. I've done some like holiday stuff for like Halloween or Valentine's Day or whatever, and that's the sort of thing where it's hard to know like what the window is to pitch Mm. because especially for like the New Yorker or something, they want a finished piece, so you kind of have to be, you kind of have to be pitching. You know, like for something for Valentine's Day, I probably have to have something ready by like the middle of January and send it out around then. Because I've definitely had the case be where I've sent something and it's been like we're already full up on holiday pitches for like mm. X holiday. Um, and it's sort of like, OK, well, I guess I'll wait till like next year rolls around and try to send it like a week earlier. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's definitely feels like there's that crunch of like what's coming up? What can I write based on that? Mm-hmm. And like, uh yeah, and how many places ask for full full things versus pitches? Um, I feel like most places want a yeah, full. So most places want a full piece. Um, they're very. There's only a couple places that I know that accept pitches. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most editors just don't want, especially for humor writing. A funny headline could be a dud of a piece, um, and a sort of like dud of a headline. I mean, that, that Chamberlain one I was talking about of, like, the velvet feels so nice against my skin. It's, like, that headline is, like, intriguing, but you have no idea what it is. Right. Um, and I think if somebody just read that headline as an editor, they would probably, I don't know, hopefully they'd give them a chance, but whatever. <laughs> Not the point. I just think yeah. that, like, it's a different it's a different skill. When you're writing a headline, are you just thinking of how to make it the most enticing to, to read on? <sighs> Not usually. Um I mean, hopefully the reason why I'm writing the idea is that it's, like, interesting enough. Mm -hmm. But then I think afterwards there always tends to be a little massaging of, like, what's the best way to... In an ideal world, I would love that I could write just a headline and trust that people will read it. But in the real world, you got to think about um, what's the punchiest, hookiest way to, like, get this across. Mm -hmm. And, like, how can you get, like, a little joke in the headline that'll, like, have people click through? Mm -hmm. Uh, so you've written a lot for McSweeney's. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the voice of McSweeney's? <laughs> I think um, I think the voice of McSweeney's is like sort of like uh, I don't know, like a snob that like falls in mud and like thinks it's funny. <laughs> like it's sort of like highbrow, lowbrow. Right. Um, uh, I I think that they're they're like a very literate audience um, and a very like reference heavy audience in a way that I think is really fun. Um, so you can get away, you can get away with stuff there that you can't get away with anywhere else. Like right. you can reach the like grad students that like to laugh. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's a very specific audience. Yeah. The freaking nerds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the freaking nerds, man. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I would say that they're, they're like a sort of, um, you know, the smarties and the funnies. Uh-huh. Are they, I know they didn't used to pay, but then did they did a Patreon? Do they pay, or do they, or is that just to keep going? I'm not sure. I know the goal was to eventually pay yeah. um, with the Patreon. I don't know. I don't know how much the Patreon took off. I think is yeah. the problem. Um, 
I'm not sure. I know the last thing that I published for them, I didn't get paid for, at least for the online thing. I had something in the quarterly that got paid, that I got paid for, um, which was great. But as far as I know, the tendency is still unpaid. Yeah. Uh, and you wrote, uh, remove your cap and bow your head for his eye, Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. Yeah. Uh, what inspired what inspired that one? Um, I don't remember. I think I just thought it was funny to imagine the the Department of Agriculture running like a farm cult. Yeah. Um, and that he was this like mystical figure. Uh, and Vil- Vilsack is like the perfect choice for that too. That's like yeah. such a specific take on Vilsack. That <laughs> yeah. is like obviously not true, but somehow rings very, yes. very yeah. true. I know his office like got. I know that like reached him, which is very satisfying oh, that's to think cool. about. Yeah, I haven't like heard anything but somebody somebody who i know in dc was like oh they for sure um are aware of stuff like that because i just imagine like the google alerts like bring it up Mm -hmm. but yeah i just think it's um it's always it's always fun to like assign a language and like a mode of speaking to somebody Mm. who operates in a completely different mode of speaking something as boring as like agricultural bureaucracy um moving into a world of like arcane rites and rituals yeah kind of a slam dunk especially for mcsweeney's yeah <laughs> and th- this is a it's about a politician but it's not really too political uh right. do you do you like kind of i don't know taking like a more because like for instance like you know if you're if you're asking about trump right everyone like to a certain extent people are gonna have a lot of the same takes right do you like kind of taking like something different and then right going in a completely different direction yeah 100 percent. yeah I, i'm very I've been very disappointed recently in the state of like, especially Trump satire, where it's it's yeah. all the same takes, it's all the same stuff, it's not doing anything, it's not adding anything. So, yeah. And again, I I do think that like the Vilsack thing is somewhat evergreen in a way, where it's like, it's you know the Department of Agriculture is, you know, a specific reference, and Vilsack is a specific reference, but. It kind of like it still works, and it hopefully will always work until like you know the country explodes. But and it's because it's funny, even if you don't know who right. what, what either thing is. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, I do think that that's a very, I think that's very fun, and taking an unexpected take on a political thing, I think is, uh, I, it's the way it's got to be, especially now. Yeah, I mean, it's oh my god, if I have to uh, hear one more joke about tiny hands or like. Uh-huh. It's just exhausting. At the at the strand, they have at the checkout, they have like a box of uh, they say Trump's hands. Oh, I see. And they're like this. actual in the actual size, right. and it's like little tiny hands. Yeah, it's just like I don't know, like who is this for? What are we doing? Yeah. Like, well, yeah, I don't know. Uh, do you? Uh, I mean, what, we'll we'll get to it because like, you did a Paul Ryan. We'll, yeah. get, we'll talk about that I got a later. Copy here for you too. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, and the New Yorker, you've written stuff for the Shouts and Murmurs. Yes. Uh, how did you, how did that happen? Um, I was basically just sending them stuff to the slush pile for mm, years. Like honestly, probably like a good solid year. Um, I was sending them stuff, and I would get the rejection pretty much three months to the nose. Um, and then eventually, I got a personalized rejection from the editor, who was like, "From now on, send it to me." Um, and now the turnaround time is a lot quicker. So, I mean, it's it's the same as submitting to anywhere else. You just got to, like, wait it out a little longer. Uh, and how many pieces do you think you submitted before you got one on? Mm, probably four or five. I don't, I don't really remember, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, yeah. and, and these are pieces that you would obviously, like, 
done multiple drafts of and yes. felt very confident about. Yeah, yeah. and I felt was sort of like um, the language was. Um, I just yeah, I sent them stuff that I thought was really solid and was also like on their voice as far as like mm-hmm. something that's kind of um, broader, uh, smarter. Um, you know, not quite as like granularly nerdy as McSweeney's, but like more elevated than something that would run on like, you know, Mm -hmm. above average or funny or die. Right. Um, and definitely more like prosaic and more written in a literary way. Yeah. That seems to be the big difference. I feel like for New Yorkers, that's, it's like more literary. Yeah. I think so. I think like the writing, the writing can put something over the top, um, in a way that maybe the premise doesn't. Mm-hmm. Which you know is a good and a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. They do often have some absolute clunkers, oh boy, especially, yes. especially. Well, they do employ Mr. Andy Borowitz. Oh, Borowitz! I the left Donald Trump, oh, in my opinion. My God, I keep imagining uh, just them, like him in some office, and he'll like peek out into the hallway and be like, <laughs> "Guys, I've done it again!" And they all run down like, "Andy, you can't! Andy, you mustn't!" Um, I'm very curious, like, what his reputation is amongst the other. Yeah, yeah that is interesting, because I feel like they can't possibly... I don't think anybody can possibly find that funny. And Well, that's not true. There's obviously, like, legions of... Oh, yeah, there's people, of, yeah. yeah. But he, he... I don't think he works, like, in the office. Like, he, like, does it all from home. No, I gotta imagine, yeah. He makes millions, uh, I think. I think he makes, little, like, millions he, of dollars. He created... He was one of the creators of Fresh Prince, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right, so yeah. I think I think he's, like, set up. Wow, um, man! Yeah, oh boy, no, you, we don't. Borowitz is like a constant thorn in so many of our sides. It's, yeah, it's unbelievable how he he will not only find the easiest take, but the most tepid version of it. Yeah, he's um, you know, he's not great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, you wrote in the New Yorker, you wrote. Uh, Presumably, just a few pages next to uh, a few clicks away from Andy Borowitz. <laughs> yeah. The people who I imagine live in the new high rise in my neighborhood, which you wrote that like a couple weeks ago. That came out, yeah, that was the, I think that was my most recent one. Yeah, mm-hmm. it came out three years ago. Well, and what inspired that? I guess the the real life. Thing. Yeah, I live in Greenpoint and there's a lot of new buildings, and um, I they're always like occupied, and I mm-hmm. don't know who's in there. Yeah, um, well, I like see people coming and going, and I just sort of imagining what their what their lives are like. And uh, this is interesting too because it's like it's it's very of the moment now. Yes, but it's also well. Sadly, it's probably going to be a thing forever because people have been saying yeah. kind of stuff. But it's also uh, I don't know. It's done in like an evergreen way. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a specific a specific phenomenon of gentrification, and there is like a YouTube celebrity in there, and there is like um, some people that I some conversations I've specifically overheard that are like very. Of the moment, but um, yeah, I do feel like you know being curious about your neighbors is like always going to be a thing. Yeah, um, but there is like a very like Brooklyn, Brooklyn sensibility to it. Mm-hmm. And you've done uh, parody magazines. Yes, uh, you did first. You did the the New Yorker, the New Yorker, yeah. And then you did a Paul Ryan, yeah, magazine. yeah, Paul Ryan magazine, yeah. So how did you even get the idea to do a full? Uh, parody, like a full print edition of a magazine parody? Uh, um, one of my buddies who I met through the UCB, Andrew Lipstein, who's my co-editor and co-creator for both those projects, um, we're both like big... He runs like an online uh, book uh, store and he's like a very talented writer and a very literary guy. 
and we both we were like the two kids who would go to uh we were on an improv team together and we'd show up at practice with like our like copies of the new yorker and they'd be like did you read this and be like yes i hated this and i love this and like all right so, let's start improv <laughs> yeah exactly um as everyone rolls their damn eyes at us um but at some point one of us was like what if we did a full parody issue of it um and it was just sort of a thing that was like it was a very dumb and like hard idea to execute but nobody said no and by the time we realized how much work it was going to be, we were too far gone to stop it. Um, and yeah, we just got lucky of like, no, we know so many talented writers, talented artists, talented cartoonists that we put out the call and were able to, yeah, put together a full, a full, I think that was 86 pages. So wow. we, we satirized every single, we literally sat down and took an issue of the New Yorker and went from cover to cover and wrote down every little piece that we needed and then we sent that spreadsheet out to everyone we knew to like claim different parts of it um and then we compiled it all and released it as a pdf that's so cool and then uh it's also uh, you didn't mention this but it's, it, it looks like a new york yeah yeah it's illustrated it's got yeah. everything yeah our big our big mantra for that project and for paul ryan as well was to aim to pass so we wanted ideally we wanted somebody to be looking at to be looking at like well it was it was on the screen but to be like if they had a copy of the New Yorker next to a copy of the real New Yorker it wouldn't be at first blush immediately clear <laughs> from the design which was which because um, I think the closer satire can look to the thing that it's satirizing like the better it is as like a Trojan horse to get in there um, we didn't have and like we didn't have too much profanity. We didn't have stuff that was operating under the premise of, like, the New Yorker would never publish this. It was all stuff that felt plausible enough mm -hmm. um, that it could kind of, like, sneak in. And so uh, a New Yorker parody and then is like in a magazine, that's, like, an easy idea. That makes sense. Right. The, the Paul Ryan magazine seems, like, more complicated. Yeah, it was... So here, here it is if you want to check it out. But it's – so this is like – the big thing about this is like it's print um, and it's a big – it's a big like 192-page thing. So we were sort of like how do we heighten the insanity of the New Yorker? And for this, we were like let's make a parody about magazines that is all focused on one guy. Yeah. So – I'm just looking 30 Paul Ryans into 30. That's yeah, great. so that's our Brooklyn Magazine 30 under <laughs> yeah. 30 parody. So it's just like 30 dirtbags who happen to share the same name. So this was an idea that we came up with before the presidential election where we're like, who's a figure who's going to be still going to be relevant after? I mean, we all assumed Trump was going to lose. So right. we're like, who's going to be left holding the bag? Paul Ryan. Um, so we were like, we'll release this in the fall of 2017 so it'll be perfect to have like um this parody about magazines that's also like completely directed at this one like dirtbag guy um after the election we had to like tighten and, and make meaner a lot of the jokes but uh but yeah the, the idea is basically to, to have each spread be satirizing a different magazine so in the same way that like every page of the new yorker looks like a page of the new yorker um, in this, each page looks like, you know, High Times, Sports Illustrated, mm -hmm. um, Harper's, like whatever specific magazine. It looks like that. But then when you flip the page, it's a different magazine. Yeah. But it's all about 
Paul Ryan and conservatism. Yeah, that's such like a, a crazy idea. It's nuts. Yeah, and it's such a complicated thing. Yes, but I was I've seen the PDF of it, and it's yeah. like it's it's pretty incredible stuff. It's like yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. Uh, so how so? We mentioned you talked about political satire earlier. Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you handle? Doing uh doing it in this day and age, yeah. I mean, again, this we started working on this before, you know, the incident in November. So it, everything changed in you know very real ways and very un you know very stupid ways. Like mm-hmm. you know, made satire harder. But um, but yeah, it, it, I think we never wanted to go for the easy things. So there's like a minimum of like P90X jokes in here. There's a minimum of Ayn Rand jokes in here. There's a lot of like, like all the, like the obvious first blush takes we mm-hmm. wanted to avoid. Um, and I think that's kind of the problem that we're running into with, um, with like Trump stuff is it's all the same idea. It's all the same mm-hmm. basic take on the thing. And it's not really, challenging as much as it's like comforting you that you have the right opinions Mm. like you have to come to this satire with the same point of view in order to find it funny and that i think that's i think that's kind of uh unhelpful um Mm. and like a waste um i think you, you should ideally satire should challenge some conception of things um and should like push in a direction that like surprises you and then therefore like illuminates something about the thing. Um, but satire is very hard because one of my big fears about this magazine is that it like inadvertently glorifies somebody who I think is extremely bad. Um, and I think that's like a big danger of satire is giving attention um, and not criticizing in a way that just ends up giving attention and at worst ends up inadvertently glorifying the thing um i don't have you seen the the onion uh they did a recently called you're right like they uh yeah i thought that was a pretty smart yeah like takedown of that kind of idea yeah it's i mean it's exactly it's exactly the thing where it's sort of like you agree with this thing so here's a joke that shows that you agree mm-hmm. and that like sort of pats you on the head for being like smart and good and well read and like mm-hmm. whatever a criticism i've heard of like um <clears throat> the uh the daily show during the john stewart years and of course i heard this like two years after john stewart left <laughs> yeah which is so funny because people were started turning on that kind of thing later right um was that like he uh you know his eviscerations whatever would lead to catharsis Right. Which would feel like you've done something right. instead of actual action. And, uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, it's like the whole thing with social media. So you think you post a bad and you've done right. something. And then it kind of scratches that itch. And yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's very true. Yeah. So, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, it's, it's frustrating to see so much of, like, creative energy being given over to, like, t- truly horrible men. Um, and it's... Yeah, it's a lot. It does suck too. Uh, I think I, I heard Scott Ackerman say this uh, somewhere, like in person somewhere. But because uh, someone asked him like a question, like how, you know, how do you do? Someone asked like, uh, do you think we'll do more Commedia dell'arte now that Trump's president? What? Which is uh, I don't know. That's crazy. I guess because he was thinking like we'll go to the basics or something. Right, or, right, right. Um, and I, you know, he was like he made fun of the guy who answered the question, <laughs> but then he said like it just sucks. Like you know. 
if I did like some sort of comedy and like ten years from now I'd have to think, oh, that was inspired by Donald Trump. Right. Like it's so like it's just that's why like, I don't know. I mean I have a I have a podcast about comedy writing. I have plenty of people who work on these shows come right. on. Right. But it does feel like, man, what a bummer that I spend like all my time thinking about how to make jokes about, uh, about Trump. It. Yeah, man. I mean, this this Paul Ryan magazine was like became really exhausting at a certain yeah. point where like I was very close to somebody who's like actively hurting our country in mm-hmm. a way that like sometimes didn't feel useful. I'm very proud of the thing that we made, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people put in a lot of good work, but it <clears throat> is a strange. It is a strange object now of a moment, um, and especially a moment in like writing. And again, like you know, I, I love all the people that work on these shows, and I think they're like all doing good work. And but it is a strange thing where like the appetite is is such that folks are like demanding these these bits that are like sort of feeding this giant like dark cloud, and it's, yeah. it's really it's really weird. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> there's got to be some... I mean, I know... I, like, trust that there's people who are, like, doing smart work and that there are, like, smart and interesting takes out there. But I just think that it would be useful to not give more attention than the the administration is due. And, like, mm-hmm. if... Like, go back to doing, like, fun comedy. Like, I don't think there's ever going to not be a space to like make people laugh and people need to like take a break and take a breath. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you're not gonna like, if you're not completely sure that the the satire you're doing needs to be heard, then like, it's fine to make jokes. I don't think we yeah. need to be like embarrassed about that. That's something great about Conan is that he he does like yeah. monologue stuff, but like everything else he does is like nothing political, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. But then you know you look at someone like Jimmy Fallon, right? Who did the you know he did the bad thing with the right, thing, right, right. but then he gets criticized like uh, completely to not doing political stuff. Then he starts doing political stuff. It's like, like you can't win. At you can't times. win. Yeah, yeah, you can't win. Yeah, it's I, I, and I mean like Taylor Swift. Everyone got mad at her. It's like she's just Taylor Swift. Like let her just right. do her music. I know. No, yeah, I, there's something. There is. Some, I mean, I do think that like you can't be tacitly supporting a thing. Like, I think the Taylor Swift thing feels a little more insidious because she does tour. True. Yeah. In like places where there's heavy Trump supporters, so she's not trying to like stick a thumb in the eye of her audience. But I also think that like, yeah, there should be a space for her to be able to say, like, you know. I'm just a musician. I'm not particularly interested in politics. I think that's a space that we should be able to have and should be able to respect. Um, but I also do think that, like, she's kind of winking at it in a way that's, like, a little filthy. Mm-hmm. I do think that Fallon is, like, was uh, rightly criticized for some of the stuff that he did. Um, but I do also think that, like, yeah, if he just wants to be, like, an old-school talk show host that, like, yeah. you know, plays Chubby Bunny with a bunch of, like, you know, celebrities stuffing marshmallows into each other's mouths, then, like, fine. Like, mm-hmm. do it. Yeah. Um, people love that stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do, do you have plans to do another magazine? We're working on, uh, yeah, we got some ideas in the hopper that mm-hmm. we're working on. Nothing nothing ready to yeah, yeah. debut yet. But yeah. What would you like to be doing next? Um, I've been working on, um, God, what have I been working on? Um, I've been shopping some, like, shows around, um, some, like, podcasts and some TV stuff, which has been really fun. Um, so sort of, like, 
making work to get work. We've been in talks through Paul Ryan with some political people to work on some <laughs> political projects coming up. For it's just point. funny. I, like, it's like Paul Ryan put you through these people. <laughs> yeah. like, I love this. <laughs> yeah. We sent a bunch to his office and he never responded, which is probably smart in his part. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Like, I think the next thing is like trying to push some of these, some of these projects through to hopefully make a little bit of money mm-hmm. make something with some higher production value. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, Andrew and I have been approached by some political folks to do some stuff for the 2018 midterms, which I think would be really uh, fun. Cool. Um, so hopefully some of that comes through, uh, fingers crossed. And then, yeah, just working on some longer stuff with some other people um, and just doing the yeah, same old stuff. Cool. Damn it. Uh, okay, so we're going to wrap up with you giving your thoughts oh, right on, on some like uh, ideas, I guess. Cool. So these would be, uh, these would be internet pieces ideas. Basically. Okay. Cool. All right. So, uh, okay. So this is a pitch of something that you would want to write. Yeah. Okay. Um, my cover letter to become the next host of the Ellen DeGeneres show. Okay. So you know, it's basically like your yeah, it's like a cover letter for like becoming this host. Like I believe my experience in my office has set me up to be the new Ellen DeGeneres host. So the twist is that like, or the take is that um, it's somebody who's patently unqualified. I guess I, I think I just think the idea of writing a cover letter to become a host of the talk show right, is right, funny. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think that works. Um, I think it could be fun to do a thing where somebody who's had like pretty typical work experience is trying to like right because the fun of cover letters is trying to like shoehorn your experience into like mm-hmm. like I did this thing that's totally unrelated, but you'd be surprised how related it is to the yeah, job I'm okay. applying yeah. for. So I think maybe the thing of like finding Ellen specifics, um, or even talk show specifics, and being like, yeah, yeah, I think that's fun. Uh, okay, hi friends. I've been working on a movie called Han Solo that I'd love you to watch by Ron Howard. <laughs> and so it'd be like, you know, you get those like emails, you get like BCC'd mm-hmm. on. It's like, hey guys, I'm working on this movie. I'd love for you to check it out. Right, right, right. Just, but it's Ron Howard promoting Han Solo. <laughs> yeah, that's very fun. Of uh, yeah, like some big blockbuster. Or even, like, uh, even mapping it onto, like, I don't know if you get these, but, like, people's, like, newsletters they sign you up for. It's like, I have shows coming up of, like, hey, guys, I've been working really hard on this new project. It would mean a lot if you... Like, it could even be, like, a Facebook post of, like, hey, guys, I've been working so hard on this thing. It would mean a lot if you check it out. Um, Of something that, um, like, obviously has such a huge marketing push. But that, like, the network is... Actually, it could be funnier to imagine the network being like, Ron, you got to reach out to your networks. <laughs> like, you got to text your friends to come see this movie. Uh, yeah, Ron, you're an influencer. So <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. why we hired you to oh, finish God. the movie. Yeah, that's so dark, but that could totally be true. It's like, Ron, could we get a retweet? Could Disney get a retweet? Uh, all right, this one, I feel like someone's had to do some sort of take on this next sure. one, but. Uh, and this isn't a great headline for what it is, but uh, I, I I respond to every Trump tweet, and I am our country's last hope. Yeah, because like the verified Trump tweeters are like it's insane. Like, sir, you are bad, and oh, then like a th- ten thousand retweets. But I feel like someone's got, someone's had to make that. that... I think I mean, who knows? Like probably, but I do think that there is a specific. Um... I do think that there is a, a very specific pathology to the people who are like who wake up every morning and like crack their knuckles and get onto Twitter <laughs> to be like I'm gonna tell the president that he's bad today. Um, there was something that I was listening to some podcast about where they were talking about the Russia investigation and apparently there's people who, and this could be a fun angle for this too is like to find something more specific like this of like there are apparently people who have like devoted their lives to like 
amateur sleuthing about the Russia investigation. Ugh. Yeah, what's like... That's so sad. I know, and you can imagine somebody who's like, the poor spouse being like, honey, you're spending every day, and it's like, I'm going to be the one who's going to crack this open, like this citizen sleuths, which is like, on the one hand, sort of admirable, but on the one hand, is like so dark and sad. Yeah. So just to imagine somebody who's like, I will be the like, unpaid... Woodward and Bernstein yeah. <laughs> that that will like bring down this president is I I think that's a very funny character. Mm. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, man. Anything you want to plug? Mm. Yeah, if you're interested in finding out more about um, the New Yorker or Paul Ryan magazine, um, there's a bunch of links on my website at uh, which is jamesfolta.com, um, and you can buy copies of Paul Ryan. We still got a bunch left, and we'll ship them to you wherever you live. Um, and the reading night that I was talking about, we have a show. Coming up on March 12th, which is actually our four-year anniversary. Whoa. Um, yeah, so it's going to be at 8 p.m. at Le Poisson Rouge. Oh, cool. Which is really cool. So we're in that gallery space, which I think will be great. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be me and my co-hosts, Brian Agler and Luke Burns. And then uh, we have really great guests lined up. Um, we have Jen Spira, who writes for the uh, who writes for Colbert. Um, Seth Reese, who writes for... Uh-huh. Um, uh, Seth Meyers. Seth right? Meyers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then um, Rianne Conk, who's a New Yorker writer, and she's actually coming into town. She's like traveling to New York from somewhere in the Midwest to be Whoa, on the show, which is awesome. great. And we're looking for a fourth guest, so there'll be some TBDs. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it should be really fun. So if you like, mm-hmm. if you like hearing your favorite stuff read out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and and you guys have a, a newsletter where you yes we have a newsletter um, that's also available on my website where we send out our like picks for the best short humor which is great I read it every week yeah. oh thanks man yeah. yeah it's um it's like I'm I'm glad to hear that people like it because it it's sort of a thing that like. You know, in the same way that, like, we talk here, like, we love to talk about this stuff. And mm-hmm. we're like, we should just send people this stuff that we like. Yeah, yeah. And, like, some other little tidbits and mm-hmm. niblets. Uh, all right, cool. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow on Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. And a Boardwalk Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit BoardwalkAudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.